Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us this morning. Um, we are here to talk about what happens when uh, we are not selected in the H-1B lottery. And after coming off of this most recent H-1B lottery cycle, uh, many of us are in this position exploring alternatives. Uh, with us this morning is uh, Anthony Arena from Fragman, Bethany Mandel from Mandel Law Offices, and I'm Allison Ahern Fillow, and I work at Davis Mom. So we, we thought to start this morning just by going over, you know, a brief overview of the H-1B category. Uh, as many of you know, it's the uh, employment visa option for professionals in specialty occupations. And what that means is that the position requires a minimum degree of a minimum requirement of a bachelor's in a specific specialty or equivalent experience. Um, and the uh, employee must um, be qualified for the position. New H-1B petitions go through what's commonly referred to as the CAP, uh, which means the annual quota that the government uh, gives for new H-1B petitions. And um, the cap is 85,000. 65,000 are reserved for um, bachelor's degree holders. That's commonly referred to as the regular cap. And then an additional 20,000 is allotted to uh, U.S. master degree holders or advanced degree holders, um, the requirement being that that advanced degree was earned at a U.S. institution. Um, and that's referred to as the master's cap or the advanced degree cap. And what happens in the lottery is um, employers register um, employees or prospective employees. Um, and if those employees have an advanced degree, uh, they go through the master's cap or the advanced degree cap. Um, and then if they are not selected in that lottery um, for that cap, they go to the regular cap lottery. Um, and this is done online. Um, it's been online since uh, 2020. And it uh, occurs in March, usually the first two weeks of March and selections are made by the end of March. Um, so then that puts us here in April, uh, exploring alternatives if the employees are not selected. Then I'll hand it off to Tony to give us some uh, statistics on the selection rates. Uh, these, these are very dour. Um, uh, hi, everyone, and uh, welcome to our presentation. And I know that a lot of practitioners right now are scratching their heads and saying, I'm getting a lot of calls from um, clients that they didn't get selected. Um, and it's um, and so I just I just have this graph here, which is, you know, basically a 10 year <laughs> snapshot of how, uh, you know, the, the cap program, um, you know, again, before the registration had changed, you know, you would be probably close to, you know, two and five of people who were selected would be selected in the cap, um, you know, up until uh, fiscal year 2020. 
And then um, fiscal year 2021, we had about the same. Um, and again, this was a new type of cap selection that we had because we did the registrations first. Uh, and then anybody who had uh, been selected, we uh, could just put through an application. Um, and then uh, we've seen uh, pretty much that uh, that uh, ratio uh, go down. And then last year in the fiscal year 2023 cap, it was down to about one in four. Um, and again, this year, the numbers haven't been publicized by uh, USIS uh, yet. Uh, colloquial and anecdotally, I think across uh, practitioners, we're we're seeing around fifteen percent uh, selection rate, which is, uh, you know, that it it makes us uh, move to this uh, active. Uh, questioning as to why we need to find alternatives if your chances of being selection is you know one and a half out of ten. Um, and that is and and that is the reason why we see a lot of these programs now um, being pushed out there by practitioners where you know what are the other alternatives and uh, we hope that this is informative for you. And I'm going to pass it off to uh, B uh, for the next slide. So we want to talk to you about the primary options that we've been analyzing with our clients. And I suspect that you are very much in the same uh, mode as we are, which is you have a host of people that didn't get selected for the, the cap. In fact, probably at least 85% of your H1B lottery cases. And some of them are more vulnerable than others. So I have a host of people that are on STEM on their first year of OPT. Most of them are here on OPT, of course, right? So most of them are, uh, many of them are in their first year of OPT. Most of them are in their second or third year of OP, OPT. And I have a couple, one who's expiring on May 11th with her final year of STEM OPT, a couple expiring in July. So the people that were expiring this summer, we in spring, we knew uh, last year when they first came on board to my clients' companies that this was it for them. And if they didn't make it, we had to start planning. So we started planning around these options then. And really what we have here are four, what are, have been for me and my clients, and I'm sure for many of you, our go-to options. And then the final one is sort of re-examining whether we just, thinking outside the box, want to uh, figure out whether there are any other types of non-immigrant work authorized statuses that we just didn't consider or we could rejigger the case to, to work for. So the go-to options that I've been working with my clients, some which since last year to plan for as our backup, if we didn't get selected in the lottery and couldn't afford to wait until the summer and see if there's a second lottery, which is, of course, our first hope. Um, we looked at cap-exempt employment, um, and uh, Tony's going to talk about that and concurrent cap-exempt employment um, to see whether or not there's any options for cap-exempt employment that we didn't explore through relationships that many of our private companies um, have at different research institutions. This really applies, obviously, to a lot of life sciences and other types of businesses like that. Um, but it, it doesn't have to be limited to that. Um, in terms of the concurrent cap exempt employment, sometimes there are ways to be creative. And we encourage you to think about that. Um, the third, he'll be talking about those two. The third option is what is commonly referred to as day one CPT, which is day one curricular practical training 
for people that um, are running out of status. Again, most of our folks are here running out of their STEM OPT that have to turn to this and figure out whether or not it's reasonable for them to enroll in a new degree program and examine, uh, try to get day one CPT. And we look at how that's been viewed historically and how people are using it now and how it's been working. Um, the fourth option is one that um, I've been using for some clients and I'm pretty excited about, but I feel like there's not a ton of information out there about it. So it's a lot to get your head around. Um, but in 2022, there were the Biden STEM initiatives, and I've been using those initiatives, which are broader than just J1s, but to take people that didn't get selected in the H-1B lottery and uh, shift them into a J-1 research scholar with private companies. And it has been a tremendous resource and worked quite well. And I'll talk a little bit about that, which is certainly a much newer option. And then um, the three of us will go into the concept of other statuses that are based on uh, citizenship or particular um, uh, ability of the foreign national and the profile of the foreign national and or as with the L1, the profile of the company and the structure of the company. So we look forward to going over there, going over these with you today and answering any questions you might have. Okay, so this is my slide. So uh, H-1B cap exempt employment. So there's a difference between cap exempt and cap subject. Uh, cap, uh, the quota, the H-1B cap, uh, that we all traditionally know about. That's the, the lottery that we talk about. Um, those are the ones that are um, at this point in time need to be filed before uh, June 30th um, with designated dates that start on 10-1. Now, cap exempt can be filed at any time. And who are the cap exempt uh, entities, uh, their colleges and universities, uh, organizations that are affiliated with um, uh, academic universities and colleges, and, and nonprofit research entities and government research. Um, again, so and then that's not that's not the full gamut of it. But again, if you're not counted against the cap, these are the entities that you want to be thinking about for potential employment. So if you had had your uh, F1 with per perhaps a, uh, a private company, uh, maybe you're going to focus now your employment search well with your university or uh, another uh, adjoining university that can possibly sponsor you in uh, a, uh, a a cap or an H1B petition um, that is not subject to the cap. Uh, some other things that are not subject to the cap because we are extensions, amendment petitions, um, and uh, and we're going to go into a, a concurrent H-1B employment as well in our next slide. Um, we also want to mention that um, for our nationals who may have switch status, maybe they're on an H-4 now, but had previously been on an H-1B, if they still have time available, that time is still can be used uh, without actually going into the lottery again. Um, and the, uh, again, and those are the, those are the things that we want to, you know, kind of like always keep in mind who you're talking to, ask the questions, see if they had been here uh, on an H-1B previously, had been subject to the cap already, and see if they have any time left. So those are a couple of things to, to keep in mind. Um, if I can get the next slide. Um, and now uh, concurrent cap exempt employment. So um, 
can you work for a uh, a cap exempt employer and then work for a profit or, or a, a a cap subject employer? And that and the answer to that question is yes, you can. And um, and these are some things to you know to consider. Um, as you're going through and thinking about, you know, your job searches and what you have, um, a, you know, your ability to do. Um, uh, and this, and then as we go through, can you have two full-time jobs? Sure, sure you can, but USIS is going to have to approve both your petitions. So you have to look at these in a practical way too. And what will the adjudicator say you have uh, 80, 80 hours of your, you know, roughly 80 hours of your life is going to be spent doing these two times job. Mm -hmm. So you can expect a, a um, some, you know, uh, at least a potential RFE regarding these types of uh, these particular, like if you're saying that we're going to have a, another full-time job with a cap subject employer. So the idea is, perhaps would be rather than doing the full-time is then we'll have a full-time, uh, you know, subject, uh, full-time cap exempt employment, and then a part-time um, uh, cap subject and employer that you're working with. And those structures, you should talk to your immigration um, uh, professional and provider about those things. And those discussions should be a robust discussion as to what can you really um what what has the experience have been that you can get an approved petition through USIS, which is ultimately what we were looking to have happen. Um, and with and and finally, if you go this route, you need to maintain that uh, cap exempt employment as an anchor for that H one B. Uh, employment for that cap subject employer. So I know that that's kind of like, it, it, it's it's kind of like a, um, uh, 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 I guess the best way to say it is like an anchor toward to make sure that you still maintain that particular H-1B uh, visa while you're working for that profit company or that company that is subject to the cap. Anthony, I wanted to mention something that I've had people ask about uh, what would it look like to have if I uh, didn't want to pursue two full-time positions, if I got an, an, an institute of higher ed um, to sponsor me for a cap-exempt em, uh, employment so that I can then piggyback a full-time uh, position with an H-1B private company to circumvent the lottery. And one of the recommendations that uh, we've made that's worked really well is that if you can get a CAF-exempt institution, often an institute of higher ed in the case that I've done it with, um, to sponsor you for a part-time job, the question becomes, well, if we're going to do that for you from the institute of higher ed, how many hours a week do we have to sponsor you for? And it's actually worked really well to sponsor someone for a range of hours. And so that's really been a win-win because so let's just say, for example, I recommend let's sponsor, if you don't know, if you know you have some funding and you want to sponsor this person for a part-time H-1B to help you, but also to help them be able to work full-time with their private employer, um, what we've done is we've said, let's sponsor them for five to 15 hours, because five hours, at least, as long as it's a reasonable amount of salary that they can support themselves, um, that allows them to have the part-time position, but it allows the employer to employ them up to 15 hours 
uh, when if they have limited funding, when they have a little bit more funding, they can increase the amount of hours, but they always have to pay them at least five. So when I'm structuring a part-time CAP-exempt employment with a full-time CAP-subject employment, I've recommended using a range of hours because it ends up giving the person flexibility to not always have to work 15 or maybe 20 hours a week, whatever the higher end of the range is but to always get at least five hours a week so that the H-1B cap-exempt petition can pass the smell test. That's, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's great because that's the, the, that robust conversation that you need to have with, you know, with your client and with the, and with the foreign national. So um, I think it's next slide. All right. So um, just, you know, taking a step back and, looking at the F1 status, because this is this is the most common path that we see. Um, we see someone graduate from a program here in the United States. They receive that first 12 months of optional practical training, OPT, to uh, go um, use the knowledge that they just acquired in the degree program and uh, get training and, and employment at a U.S. entity. Um, and it, as they, you know, they use that employment authorization card that they're allowed under OPT, um, they may be eligible for a STEM extension um, if their degree was in science, technology, engineering, or math. Um, and those, as, as the slide notes, the um, expansion of STEM OPT fields happened in 2022, so that there are additional degree programs that are now eligible for STEM. Um, but this is um, what I find in my practice, the, like the starting point and where employers call me and say, we have um, someone working for us under OPT. He or she is exceptional. We want to do whatever we can to keep um, them in the country working for us. What are our options? What can we do? Um, and that's, uh, you know, leads the conversation about H-1B um, because as we've seen, most often it goes from the F-1 OPT to the H-1B work authorization. Um, but, you know, what happens when uh, that the, the H-1B is not possible and, and the, the employee was not selected in that lottery? Um, so then it, 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 I think this is almost always comes up is should we use day one CPT? And, can the can the employee stay in F one status, um, and what does that look like? Um, so, what does day one CPT mean? Day one CPT means that the employee is in an academic program that requires immediate participation in curricular practical training, and curricular practical training is uh, tr employment training. Um, that relates to the degree being pursued. Um, and it can be full-time or part-time hours, and it supplements the academic program. So it's in tandem with the academic program, the student is getting additional training um, through a U.S. employment opportunity. And we call it day one CPT because that immediate participation in the CPT is required. Um, so when, when employers, when we start to think about this as an option to continue to employ the person 
if he or she is not selected in the H-1B lottery, uh, we look at what program is the employee considering going into for the uh, CPT and what are the risks um, and what other considerations do we have to think about? So um, I think a lot of these day one CPT programs are online or the majority of the hours are, the course hours are online. And I, you know, if they're all, if they're, if it's full online, that presents a greater risk. I think some amount of in-person attendance uh, mitigates the, the risks involved of using um, of the of using the day one CPT. Um, another consideration is: is it at the same degree level or is it at a higher degree level? Um, because you know, in some instances, if the individual, if the employee was earned his or her bachelor's degree in the United States, got the um, OPT, started working for a U.S. employer, and then they were considering a master's degree anyway, um, and they were not selected in the H-1B lottery, then, you know, it's, I would say the risk is fairly minimal because they're going into a master's degree program they they likely would have pursued anyway, and they're getting that um, CPT, that immediate CPT authorization to continue to work for the U.S. employer, which is only supplementing and adding on to their program of study, their master's degree program of study, becomes more problematic when it's a second master's degree or a third master's degree. Or, um, and, you know, it's kind of clear that this degree is just being pursued in order to continue to work in the United States. I always suggest to document it um, as thoroughly as possible. What that means is is making sure that um, each um, quarter or semester or the requirements by the academic program, you have those cooperative agreements between the school and the employer in place. Those agreements specify what training the employee um, or the student is getting in that employment at the U.S. entity, um, and how the U.S. entity is like facilitating that training, um, and then of course having the I-20s endorsed by the designated um, school officer, so that um, th- there's clear authorization from um, the government allowing for the curricular practical training, um, and on those I-20s the whether it's full-time or part-time is specified. Um, And so, you know, again, when we talk about the risks, where where would these risks present themselves? And I think most often it's, is using the day one CPT violating the F1 status so that there's a maintenance of status issue? and that would come up later on when the individual is trying to change status from F1 to H1B if um, he or she is selected in a future of H1B lottery, or even down the road when he or she's trying to adjust status to US permanent residency. Um, if he or she has never left the United States, you're going back all the way to the last admission and making sure that status was maintained every single day. Um, and 
the question on whether using day one CPT violates the F1 status um, comes from the the, the regulation um, on the slide here, um, 8 CFR 214.2, which says not clearly, but maybe you can infer that there should not, an individual should not be granted more than 12 months of practical training at the same, at, the, at a certain degree level. Um, so again, this is an, an issue when the, the curricular practical training is issued at a higher degree level, a different degree level. This would be if the individual is doing a second master's degree, so same degree level, that student has already done um, 12 months of OPT at that degree level. And now they're, they're using 12 months or more of CPT at that degree level. Um, and I think that there's, there's ways to interpret that regulation to argue that um, for curricular practical training, 12 months is not a, a maximum. Um, and that if immediate participation in curricular practical training is necessary for the degree program, then that student can use as much um, curricular practical training as necessary to complete the degree program. Um, I have received these requests for evidence on H-1B petitions um, for uh, employees who are trying to change status to H-1B um, without having to go through consular processing and they are on an F1 and they've used day one CPT. Um, and these RFEs can be quite um, uh, <laughs> burdensome and ask for a lot of documentation on the degree program, whether or not the student went in person, asking for receipts to show they went in person, asking for um, their, their like campus ID to, to show they went in person. Um, and if you can document all of that and document the fact that the academic program requires immediate participation in CPT, then that H-1B petition has, has a likelihood of success. I've had the change of status approved after that issue. Um, I've also had the change of status denied and consular processing was required. Um, so I think it's, it's you know, these are the considerations that you need to discuss with the employer and, um, and the employee, and just to make sure that they know that this maintenance of status issue could come up. Um, other common questions that I, that I received in my practice is, um, can I leave the program once my H-1B is approved? I advise against that because I think that that almost highlights the fact that you were only using it for uh, the eligibility to continue to work in the United States and that you really had no intention of getting that second or third master's degree. Um, so I advise to, to complete that degree. Um, and then I also get a, a question of, does the degree have to relate to my previous degrees? Does it have to relate to um, like my career path. And I, and I think it does. I mean, I think you, you want, if you're trying to um, mitigate further questioning, either at the change of status stage or the adjustment of status stage, you want to be able to show that this, this degree program, while it was additional 
really furthered your career and and you did have every intention of of completing it and doing well in it and um basically it was well intentioned all right okay so um I've just been in a lot of conversations with foreign nationals, some of mine expiring, um, one in particular on May 11th and the other one in July about, and, and a couple of others of my 85% of my cases that didn't get selected in the lottery, um, about what options we're going to do. And, and most of the time, and I think Anthony and Allison might agree, um, H-1B cap exempt employment, uh, the first option, H-1B concurrent employment, finding another employer to sponsor you to piggyback a full-time H-1B by our private industry clients is really the harder sell. And so we've been focusing on day one um, CPT and this J-1 research uh, scholar option I want to talk to you about as our go-tos. And we've sort of gone back and forth between them. Um, some of them been choosing day one CPT um, as the path, um, largely because, as Allison mentioned, it was there was a degree the person was interested in, the foreign national. Um, it was something that they had in their brain anyway about something they wanted to do. And it was a school that allowed them to immediately engage in CPT um, and to continue to work at our company. And one thing I wanted to add was the, the university that most foreign nationals um, have successfully, in my experience anyway, used for CPT that I feel comfortable with is Harrisburg in Pennsylvania. Um, I've heard of other ones. Um, I don't know them as well. And so I'm not putting a plug for Harrisburg in particular, except for to tell you that when I hear the name of that school for CPT, I'm a little less nervous because I know that the people are going for weekend classes and most of the work is remote, but they do have in-person sessions that my clients can document um, that they attend and go to in addition to all the documentation they have of what and why they need uh, curricular practical training to complement their educational degree. So I feel confident that I know that the infrastructure of the program is something that I think can pass the smell test um, down the line that it was legitimate day one uh, CPT. So for other clients, we've gone this J1 route. So just to give a little bit of a step back, people have heard of the J1 and I've always, um, it's not been something that's been a major part of my practice because a lot of it is irrelevant to what I do. And you may feel the same way because it's the one visa category that has a ton of subcategories. So what are the ones we hear about? Um, au pair, camp counselor, J1 uh, student at colleges or universities, um, or at secondary schools. There's J1 physicians, another area that, that I know people that specialize in, but I don't really do. J-1 research scholars, which I've seen my clients interview them when they've been coming from universities where I've traditionally seen J-1 research scholars working. J-1 specialists, J-1 work and summer travel. Those are people you'll hear about coming to work in summer jobs, often in coastal areas, but other areas as well. J-1 teachers, J-1 trainees, and J-1 interns. So traditionally, I haven't had a great need to access the J-1 category. Um, so, and when the H-1B cap hit uh, about five years ago, I ended up turning to the J-1 intern and trainee category. I won't go into depth with them, but I will tell you that I'd have to spin, um, you know, is legitimately, obviously in a legitimate manner, 
my case to argue that the person that I had wanted to sponsor for an H-1B for my client, that my client had wanted to sponsor, we would have to, to determine if there were a viable way to craft their role into making them an intern or trainee, which essentially argues that they're here gaining experience or training with the company. The intern positions are only limited to 12 months. The trainee positions are limited to 18 months. One requires that you're either in a foreign degree program within the last, uh, the internship, um, or had just graduated within the last 12 months. Um, and the other one uh, requires something else. And the point is that I really feel that I stepped away from the intern and trainee category because it really only got us 12 to 18 months. It was a lot of work for the client and um, the person really wasn't buying a lot of time. So it was a very low cost benefit. And most of my clients decided to forgo it, knowing that they only had one more chance essentially at the lottery by getting even the maximum of 18 months for a trainee. Um, and it became something that clients just really weren't pursuing. If you go to the next slide, please. But then um, more recently, I've become familiar with something that has was announced back in 2022. And to be honest with you, I'm really just getting my head around using. And I think that's true of a lot of ALA practitioners. You all might remember in January 2022, the Biden-Harris administration announced a number of um, quote unquote actions to, I'm looking at a fact sheet that I included in our resources, actions to attract STEM talent and strengthen our economy and competitiveness. That's the name of their fact sheet. So what they did was they decided that there weren't enough opportunities to facilitate activities in the US um, for, through foreign talents in science, technology, engineering, and math. So they announced a number of initiatives and some of them um, one of them, Allison mentioned on her slide, which was the expansion of the STEM fields to give more students in more STEM um, fields an opportunity to get uh, the additional 24 months of OPT after their first year of OPT. There's another initiative that you all have heard about where they expanded certain interpretations of O1A, um, Aliens of Extraordinary Ability, um, they clarified eligibility standards, which in fact just made them more expansive in the interpretations that Department of Homeland Security offered, which was a really welcome thing, of course. Um, they had gave examples of evidence and things like that that would expand the O1A category. Uh, they also expanded some clarifications, provided clarifications on national interest waivers. But what I have been working with in the last six months is they did a number, uh, they issued something called an early career STEM initiative. And it was issued um, at the same time on January 21st, 2022 by the Department of State, which is the agency that regulates J-1 visas. You don't get them from USCIS, which also makes J-1s very confusing. Um, but the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, which is the DOS-ECA, they issued something called the Early Career STEM Research Initiative, which again, their idea is to expand the J-1 category to provide more opportunities for foreign nationals to work in science, technology, and engineering and math positions with companies that and organizations, nonprofit and for-profit, that um, have the need for their talent. And so there are actually a number of early career STEM research initiative um, opportunities that are relevant but I'm not gonna talk about all of them here. The one I wanna talk about is the one that I've successfully used for my people that didn't get selected in the H-1B lottery, and that is the J-1 Research Scholar category. 
This is another category I hadn't really used a lot of, but essentially J1 research scholars are people that foreign nationals that traditionally have been working in academic institutions and they've been engaged in research and nanoengineering, engineering, um, neuroscience, uh, nucleic acid therapeutics, all sorts of basically uh, basic and applied uh, and other types of research. Um, and so this early career STEM initiatives has this purpose that is stated here, which is to support an increase in science, technology, engineering, and math students, professionals, and exchange visitors on educational and cultural exchange programs in the United States. So when I first looked at it, it didn't seem like it had that much relevance to me or my clients. But I began to do a deep dive into the information, which I will admit I don't think is super clear. <laughs> so I included some resources on the next page. But essentially what I discovered is that this initiative allows U.S. STEM businesses, private employers, meaning our clients, to serve as J-1 host employers for research scholars as long as they're coming to seek STEM research experience or training. So how does it really work for us? Um, I've used it two ways so far. I've had my private STEM companies, mostly for me, life sciences and IT, but we um, obviously we have other types of clients that we all represent. Um, and I found people that they've interviewed that um, were here as J1 research scholars working at universities across the United States. One of them was in nanoengineering who they wanted to hire. And this was last year. And I said, well, we can apply for this person in the H-1B lottery, but we don't know if they're going to get selected. There's a pretty low rate. Last year, it was 30%. I had no idea it was going to drop to 10 or 15% at the time we talked about it. And they said, well, we really want her now. We can't wait till October. And so I learned that they could be a host employer as long as we file, found a designated J-1 sponsor that works with research scholars that typically they work with research institutions, but they could now be our J-1 sponsor. My private company could be a J-1 host employer, and we could place take this J-1 research scholar who is working at this institute in the institution in the Midwest and transfer her and her wonderful degree in nanoengineering that she had had from Germany, and she was here doing research at this institute and institution and transfer her for the remainder of her five-year period, which that's how much J1 research scholars get and bring her for two and a half years to my client's company and transfer her from an academic institution to a private employer, which is something I'd never been able to do before, didn't know was something that we could do. And it was a huge success. And here now she has a uh, she essentially does a J-1 transfer. She doesn't even have to leave the United States. She gets a new DS 2019 issued by the J-1 sponsor, which is regulated by the Department of State. So there's no USCIS petition that's filed. Um, the other major way, which it has been, which I'm using it currently for clients, is to for people that are not already here as a J-1 with an academic institution, which is how we've typically, how J-1 research scholars have been typically used is to have my private employer, which is a life sciences company, can become a host employer, a host company for a new J-1 research scholar position and get them an entire five-year J-1 period. Now, who is this really mostly benefiting from me? It's my people that are maxing out on their STEM OPT. It's a little tricky because we have to try to give ourselves enough of a window time before their STEM OPT expires 
And um, we go find a jade sponsor. I happen to have been working with one that's been doing these private industry J1 research scholars across the country. CIE is one of them. I'm working with another J1 sponsor who is getting up and running as well. And they um, review the position that my client wants to have the person, the research that they want them to have to do. We fill out an online application for the employee, uh, for national and the employer. The employer has to prove that they are going to either have the J-1 sponsor provide health insurance or provide it on their own. And if they provide it on their own, they provide the J-1 sponsor charges a supplemental fee to administer the program. And we requested a whole five-year period to have this person come work in a research position at my client's um, life sciences company doing RNA therapeutic research and development. And they got approved for DS 2019. Now, what is the catch? If you're here on, it's not a catch, but the, the, the limitation is that if you're here on F1 OPT, STEM OPT in this case, you can't change status from F1 to J1. Remember my first example, the person was already here in J1, but just working for an academic institution. So they just transferred their host employer from an academic institution to a private institution. In this case, this person needs a whole new J-1. And since it's not issued, there's no change of status, but because J-1s aren't regulated by USAIS, they get the DS-2019. They have to make an appointment at an embassy abroad and go get a new J-1 and re-enter with a J-1 visa to activate and commence their J-1 status. Now, that is a hassle. On the other hand, they are in the process of making the appointment. And in fact, the foreign national that I'm working with now has definitely has had several other friends have already done it. Um, at other companies. Um, what are some other limitations of this? It, you have to show the person has a bachelor's degree in a foreign field um, that's related to the job. They can have a higher ed degree in the United States as well, as my F1 STEM OPT did, right? Because that's how she came and got her STEM OPT in the first place. Um, but remember, J1s are for cultural and exchange visitors uh, and educational exchange visitors. So it, the person is coming from abroad. I will tell you there's some information that states that it's not necessarily provided in the regs that they need a bachelor's degree, but the J-1 sponsors I've been working with have been requiring it. So I put that information here um, because practically speaking, it's been a requirement for me so far. Um, as I mentioned, you can't change status from F-1 to OPT. So you are talking about leaving the country to get an interview for a new visa. And the two-year home residency requirement may apply um, if you get any uh, government funding in the process or if you're on their skills list, which my one client who is from Lithuania um, did not get a two-year home residency requirement. My other one that I'm working with now is from India, and she will have a two-year home residency requirement for which we will ultimately seek a no-objection letter from her company. Um, but it's really, you know, that is a downside to it. But the other downside was that the person's STEM OPT was expiring on May 11th. And if she didn't want to do uh, CPT and get a new another degree, which she didn't want to do, she would be going home to India. So it was worth it to her to take the risk of having the two-year home residency requirement and ultimately pursuing the waiver because she is just about to get her five-year J-1 visa to work with my company. Um, I will say, if you can go to the next slide, there is a lot of information out there that is um, a in a bunch of different places. I found it very hard to educate myself about this because of that. And so what I tried to do was provide um, five links here to information that I found helpful. The first one is the White House um, fact sheet uh, announcement about this. And it discusses 
all of the actions to attract STEM talent, talent and strengthen our economy. So it includes the other STEM initiatives that, that with the O1A and the National Interest Waiver and expanding the STEM um, OPT categories in it. So you'll find it useful for that. Then there's a couple of other um, links here to sites that will help provide you some information. And uh, But the last one is the one I found most interesting. It's by the American Immigration Council, which is the um, educational arm of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. And it's a wonderful link. And it has a ton of FAQs that will give you all sorts of information about um, what is involved and what kind of programs and what kind of uh, whether or not your client ha uh, as a host company, as a J-1 host company for these foreign nationals that are getting shut out of the H-1B cap. It talks about whether or not they have to be um, have a specific research division, whether or not they have to be an entire research company, so forth and so on. But some of the highlights of it are that generally speaking, it needs to be a STEM, obviously a STEM business. This is a STEM initiative, but the general focus of the organization can be, it can be for-profit or non-profit, obviously, because we're doing, I'm doing it with for-profit companies, but the general focus of the, the organization should be um, on research and expanding knowledge. So private industry, so they gave an example of a company that was a restaurant that wanted to be a J1 host employer, that was arguing that someone was coming in to do food process engineering research to create foods, um, certain foods in ways that um, were not necessarily um, going to further the advancement of research at large. <laughs> and so they give some other examples of cases that haven't been tried yet. Um, but the cases that are the most obvious are people that are coming to work in research, both published and non-published. Some of it can be proprietary that are um, basic or applied research. Um, and I found it to be super useful, particularly for companies that are in the life sciences realm, which is a very vibrant um, industry in Massachusetts and for really relevant to a lot of us. Thank you so much, B. I, I think that this this option is so helpful, and uh, like you said, I I don't think there's a lot out there about it. Um, speaking of um, you know individuals who um, may be doing research, um, that their positions are uh, generally research based, and they have documentation of of success. Um, in um, studying science or or business related uh, accomplishments, this is when we think: Can this person qualify for an O one visa? Uh, and I think there are there are individuals who, at the outset, when we're preparing for that H one B lottery registration, we look at the their CV and think: You know, if if he or she is not selected, an O-1 may be possible. Um, and looking at their background, I think it's, it, you know, the, the typical things to see, look for, have they authored publications? Do they have, um, you know, a, a publication record that may include some first authored uh, works? Um, have those publications been cited? Um, have they reviewed submitted manuscripts as part of a peer review process for journals? Um, have they um, 
been in a, in a program where they, they've done scientific research, where they've made some original contributions, made some original research contributions, some novel, novel work that has uh, potentially uh, impacted the field. These are all, you know, things to discuss when starting to explore this option. Um, And then on the business side, maybe, um, you know, they've, they've, they have served in an essential capacity or critical capacity at an organization with a distinguished reputation in the past, uh, whether, whether in the United States or abroad, um, and, and whether they've um, maybe been compensated at a higher level than others in similar positions in similar industries. So, you know, I think it's always it, it's always worth the discussion. Um, and the advantage of O one is that um, it's granted for an initial period of three years, um, and it can be extended in one-year increments indefinitely. So it has a, um, a, a long timeline. Um, it potentially positions the person well for um, an EB1B or an EB1A uh, immigrant classification petition in the future. And I think if, if you look at the, the USCIS policy manual, there is a lot of good language and good examples in there on how to uh, explain why an individual is eligible for or qualified for O-1. And on my recent O-1 petitions, I've really looked at that policy manual, quoted it several times throughout my uh, petition letter, um, and just made sure that the person's qualifications fit those examples that USCIS give in the policy manual for uh, documenting that someone is uh, eligible for O-1 non-immigrant classification. Um, so I think it's it's always, you know, a category worth exploring. Okay, um, so this is, uh, so I, first of all, I want to say I, the, um, Thank you, B. Thank you, Allison, for doing this already. This is this is a fantastic uh, presentation that we're we're doing. Now, the next few slides that we're going to be doing these are the traditional alternative um, uh, non-immigrant categories that if the particular people that we're talking with um, have um, have companies in foreign places, or uh, if that foreign national is from a particular country, um, these are some things that you should be able to consider with your with your clients uh, moving forward. Um, the L1 category um, allows a um, uh, folks who work for a, a global company uh, to take people from um, overseas and uh, place them in a related U.S. Uh, entity. Um, there has to be a qualifying relationship. This is the term, the qualifying relationship with that particular uh, entity overseas, either a parent, subsidiary, uh, affiliate, or branch or venture, or joint venture. Um, the L1 is divided into two specific categories, the L1A, which is executives and managers, and the L1B, which is specialized knowledge workers. These are folks who have a specific or specialized um, process methodology with the particular company that they can use, uh, that they've learned abroad, and they can use that for their, uh, in, for their US uh, entity here in the United States. Um, that 
uh, overseas um, qualify uh, the overseas time frame. They have to be there for three um, for one year of employment abroad um, in the three years preceding their move to the United States. So they could be uh, worked, you know, two years ago for a year for this particular company. And then they, that still, that still would qualify them for the, uh, for the category here in the United States. Um, the L1A category, there's a seven years maximum uh, time on that. And the L1B is a five year maximum time. Um, if there hasn't been any kind of, uh, if you have the H-1B, again, if your H-1B is is, is done and you haven't um, been selected, uh, that time counts as against the L-1 time frame, uh, uh, either the seven years or the, or the five years. Um, I know that we didn't really speak about that, but it, the reason why H-1B is so important is because of this dual intent, this dual where you can adjust status, that you can become an immigrant here in the United States. That's why H-1B is such a, uh, uh, you know, such the gold standard here. So, but the L-1 category also has this dual intent idea as well, uh, where you can adjust status without uh, without a problem Um uh, being in that particular status. And the newest uh, wrinkle with the L L1 category is that your dependent um, has automatic work authorization, which is as, as long as you've come in as an I with an I-94 designation, an L2S, um, that provides work authorization for, um, for your spouse. Hi, I just wanted to ask, since it's 1054, Oof. I can go into these, but I think that people um, can, you know, understand that these are really specific. These country specific categories are for Canadians or Mexicans or Australians, and that we're happy to follow up afterwards with um, any questions. But with regard to this slide, I thought it might be better to consider um, moving beyond this to allow for questions and just to say to make sure that if the person is a Canadian or Mexican citizen or an Australian citizen to make sure that you're thinking about whether or not the, you've considered the TN, even if your job originally didn't seem to fit in the TN category, whether you could make it fit into one of the limited TN categories, um, or whether or not an E3 might be something, you know, in our haste of the everyday life that you could have overlooked. Uh, because that's essentially identical requirements for the H-1B. So I think we can move beyond this slide and see, um, go to the next slide um, and then take questions if you all think that's all right. That's, that's you know, that's fine. Absolutely. Yes. And again, and again, if you have any, any other questions or follow-ups, our emails are uh, located on the front of the slide. And, um, you know, please reach out to the BBA. Um, for a copy of this particular uh, presentation as well. And we do have one question. Um, is it correct that if you got selected in the lottery and received an H-1B before moving to F-1 status, the lottery is valid for the full remaining time of the H-1B? Um, I believe that, that that's asking do you only have to go through the lottery once and then you're cap exempt going forward? Um, and the answer to that is yes. 
I don't know, B or or Tony, if you want to weigh in on that. No, I mean, I, 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 I'm probably, you know, when I did see the question, I was like, okay, so I'm, I'm assuming that 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 meant that um, that there was a that there was there may have been consular processing involved that you need to have uh, activated that H1B before moving into. Um, uh, the F1 status, but if that's the case, yes, you, you know, you're the, the clock starts ticking at six years. So you got the six years. So that's, that's, that's your, that's if you, if you're using it, you know, and you haven't used it, you get your six years. And I think, but, and just to clarify, do we mean using it like if you got selected in the lottery, but your petition was not filed? Um, do you get to still use that? And I think, um, I think that's a trickier question. Like if you didn't ever, if you got selected, but your employer and Bumika, I'm not sure exactly what your question is and feel free to clarify, but if you did get selected in the lottery, you didn't end up having the employer file a petition and came in on F1. I don't think that would benefit you because you didn't, as Tony say, right? Like you didn't file the H1B petition based on your selection and come in and activate that H1B and have at least one paycheck. Um, that's been my understanding is that you have to come in and activate it and be paid as an H1B employee to show that you um, have now used that lottery number and now can benefit from six years. Even if you don't use all the six years, you could go back and use the rest. But I do think you have to have activated it. Is that your position, Anthony and Allison? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, correct. Yes. And the, the selection in the lottery is specific to the employer, right. the employer's registration that got selected. So that specific H-1B has to be filed between April 1st and June 30th. And that specific H-1B has to be activated. To preserve your to, yeah. space. Yeah, exactly. Follow-up question. Yeah. Oh, okay, did it just disappear? <laughs> no. Oh, here we go. I worked for a year on each one day. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you're still cap, you're cap yeah. exempt. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I think we have. Two minutes left or a minute left. Any other questions? Hmm. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, B. I think this was great. Super informative. Always, always I, good I, to run through the options. Yeah, exactly. Um, and again, if anybody is um if any follow-ups, you know, please reach out to us. Uh, we're happy to happy to answer any additional questions that you may have. Thank you, everybody.